Well, good morning. My name's Taylor, and I'm glad to be with you. And I remember, I think the, the hottest day that I remember before this was one when I was just a child. And my family was on a road trip back from Montana. I had just uh, done a couple chores for my grandpa on his ranch, and I think he gave me five bucks to spend as I saw fit. And at the time, we were in the 1980 Chrysler minivan, and I was asleep between the floorboards or between the back seats on the ground, and we roll into the Flying J gas station, and I grab that $5 bill, which is burning a hole in my pocket, about as hot as the air, and I bolt in there, and I grab the soda fountain thing and fill the $5 worth of soda. It's a lot of soda. It's a bad idea, but I was thirsty. And I came back to the car ready to go, and I came back to find that while I was in there filling up my soda, soda cup, my dad had bought my sisters pretty much everything in the gas station. Gatorade, water, candy bars, whatever, whatever they wanted. And he knew that they did not get the $5 funny money for working on the ranch. And they knew that they couldn't walk into a gas station and fend for themselves, so they asked him, and they waited on him, and he provided. I was, I was a little angered with how well he provided. And I've never forgotten the lessons that I learned that day. The first lesson is don't be a jerk to your sisters and rub it in their face. The second one is think of others, uh, identify their needs and meet the needs of others. But more significantly, trust your dad. Trust your dad to know what you need and to have a bigger supply to meet that need. Trust him to be generous. In Psalm 81, we catch a glimpse into God's heart when His children try to fend for themselves. Turn with me there, please, and follow along as I read. To the choir master according to the Gittith of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. 
Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him and their fate would last forever. But He would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Psalm 81 is illustrating this heart of God as he laments that his people do not believe him to be generous. And he expresses his longing to satisfy them. God laments his people's disobedience. They neither listen nor obey. And he is longing to bless them longing to satisfy them. Now, as we dive into Psalm 81, we have to observe the stage that Asaph has set here, Asaph, the worship leader. He begins, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre and the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. And Psalm 81 is listed as one of the great festal psalms explicitly written to be sung as Israel would congregate together in remembrance of their delivery from slavery in Egypt. Now likely this was a generic festal psalm because a few dates are mentioned. The trumpet sound, the sound of the shofar, indicates the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, which was a feast that reminded the people of God's abundant provision for them at the new moon in the seventh month. And then at the full moon, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths would begin as a reminder of God's deliverance of His people from Egypt when they lived in booths. And then between them, the Day of Atonement in which one goat would be killed and another would be sent out, the scapegoat, signifying the forgiveness and the freedom from sin. So the poet here is intending that for these feasts, the people of God would remember his provision for them, his deliverance of them, and his forgiveness. The point can't be missed, though, that God's people are called to worship him. And the call is clear. As the people gathered for these feasts, they were being invited to respond to who God is and what God has done. Precisely what we invite you to every week as we gather together. Tim read a call to worship, inviting you to respond to who God is and what He's done. Not a rah-rah, here-we-go message, but a remember what God has done. Consider who He is and respond to Him. And the activity that the people were to engage in is also not unfamiliar. Sing aloud. Shout for joy. Raise a song. Now, if you're one of those people who doesn't doesn't like to sing when we're all singing together because you maybe you don't like your voice or for whatever reason. It might be helpful for you to know that the, the Hebrew word here for sing is the same spelling as the word that means rattle or creak. And so if you need to hear that this morning, that the command for you is to creak a song, then would you do that as we respond in a few moments and sing aloud, creak aloud, and that will suffice. But the point is that God's people cannot not sing. 
Now, imagine this riotous call to worship. The trumpets are blasting, the timbrels are clapping, and the people are coming from all over the hillside to celebrate what God has done. And you would be right to picture the electricity in this congregation as they remember that they were once slaves and now they are free as they gather to rest and celebrate what God has done. And as they gather around, the psalmist worship leader begins to sing of the work that God has done. And his face changes. And his tone changes. And the melody of the song changes. And a hush falls over the gathered crowd. No longer is the worship leader singing his own song as he calls the congregation to worship. He starts to sing prophetically the words of God. He says at the end of verse 5, I hear, a, I hear a language I had not known. And then in verse 6, he tells forth what that voice is saying. So as the hush falls over this excited crowd and they hear these words, they are once again pierced to the heart as God speaks. And God rehearses this beautiful summary of his deliverance of his people. Look at verse 6. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And God is recounting His work in delivering His people from slavery in Egypt. It's a reminder for the people that the declaration of their independence, their deliverance, had been decreed by God. And they realized they were now indeed liberated. That is great news for people to hear that. That's newsworthy of a holiday or two or four or a festival. And God reminds them of the highlights of this story. I relieved your shoulder from the burden, your hands from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. And in this, God is reminding the people that He is the agent of their deliverance. He is the one who has set them free. And that He is the one who heard their cry. You may remember Exodus chapter 2, which says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God New. God is here at the beginning reminding the people of their place of desperation, reminding them what it was like to need Him, reminding them how badly they had it and how desperate they were for His hand to stretch and save them. They have long now been out of Egypt. But they were once there. And perhaps this morning you too are stuck in Egypt. 
Perhaps you too are pinned under the burden on your shoulders or the basket in your hands without hope. Or perhaps you have hope. Perhaps you have hope that you will be strong enough to free yourself or sneak out in the middle of the night and escape. Perhaps that slavery doesn't look like rocks or baskets. Perhaps it looks like the deep-seated rebellion you have against God or your disbelief of Him or your downplaying His love for you or your fear, your guilt, or your shame. This morning, even as I speak, be reminded that when you cry out to God, He hears you and He remembers the covenant He's made to you and He sees you And he knows. And just as he did for this people in Egypt, he will leave free and deliver you. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, the people that are freed from slavery are not just now plopped in the promised land, they enter the wilderness. People who are freed from slavery here enter the wilderness. And it is there in the wilderness that God meets them again. He meets them in a a cloud and in the fire. And He speaks to them on Mount Sinai in a voice of thunder. And it's there in the wilderness that God tests them at the waters of Meribah. Now these waters, I think, become significant in understanding this psalm. So would you turn back with me to Numbers chapter 20 because these few words, I tested you at the waters of Meribah, caused the people to recall an entire story of their wilderness wandering. And now maybe today, on a day like today, it's easier to picture yourself as a wilderness person. Parched, exhausted, sweaty, filthy, longing for anything cool and wet. And you maybe should remember that you are a wilderness person. Freed from bondage to sin, slavery to sin and death, and now set free to follow where God leads, to depend on Him in the wilderness as you look forward and long for the promised land where you will be with God forever. Numbers chapter 20 describes life in the wilderness at the waters of Meribah. In verse 2, there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. 
So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink for their, to the congregation and their cattle. Now Moses has already been through this once before. The people have already complained because they were thirsty. They already found a rock and God told Moses to hit the rock with his staff and the water gave forth, or the rock gave forth water for all the people in their cattle. In this instance, God's command is specifically and explicitly tell the rock. Tell the rock to yield its water. So, in verse 9, Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. This is great! Amazing news! You try that this afternoon. Hit a rock and see how much water comes out. There isn't water in rocks. This is miraculous, supernatural, gracious, abundant generosity of God to give water for His people from a rock. But, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. That's the story that everyone would have remembered. And at the end of that, there is a Selah. Cue the musical outro. The story of the Exodus is done. And sit here for a minute. I think that's what the Selah is meant to do. Sit here for a moment. Imagine yourself in that story. You and I were not Moses. We're not Aaron. We're not God. You and I are all grumblers. Wilderness wandering grumblers. Now with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God has just released us from the power of the Egyptian empire. And we're only a short while into our journey toward a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And already, slave labor sounds better than being thirsty. God has led His people out of slavery through all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles and plagues. And the test is simple. Will they believe God? Will they believe God? Will they believe that God is generous? Will they believe that God is not stingy? Would God deliver them from Egypt only to create a mass burial site in the wilderness? Would God display his power over nature and water by parting the Red Sea so they could walk through it only then to die of thirst on the other side. Or would the people remember the things that God has done and believe Him? 
This song would have evoked all those questions in the congregation at this festival for those listening in hushed silence as the poet-prophet sings the words of God. And as the musical interlude stops, God begins to speak again. And here we arrive at the movement of the psalm that highlights God's heart for His children when they doubt His generosity and fend for themselves as they did at the waters of Meribah. Here we encounter a God who is lamenting His people's distrust of His generosity and expresses His longing to satisfy them. He begins that lament in verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Like a parent whose child rebels, God calls out, Israel, if you would just listen to me. He's been a faithful parent, present with them all along in a fire, in a cloud, meeting with them on a mountain, instructing them, guiding them, teaching them, providing for them. So when he continues in verse 9, it's not some arbitrary Ten Commandment that he picks out of the the bucket. He is lamenting that the people he has chosen have not followed Yahweh, the one true God. The God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, they have abandoned, forgotten his faithfulness, his generosity. They've forgotten And their fault in particular is not that they have chosen another God, but their disregard for Him altogether. They have become gods unto themselves, each one fending for himself. No, I am not God, but I do have two kids of my own. And I understand a little bit more the frustration when children do not listen. In fact, while I was writing that sentence, I think it was the third time I said the the same thing to the same child. It is lamentable, the deafness of a child's ears when they do not listen to instruction, but it is particularly lamentable when there is promise of abundance and blessing and life if they would listen and obey. But I also once was a child, and I remember disobeying and the feeling of complete autonomy that accompanied. I remember thinking that the world was at my fingertips. Once I had broken out and was free, I could do whatever I pleased. And that really, that looks like freedom. And that sounds like freedom, but it stinks like death. Listen as God continues in verse 11. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. God delivered his people out of slavery, a place where they could not listen and obey God as he instructed, into the wilderness where they are able to listen and obey God. And that is freedom. 
That is what the liberation from slavery meant. Not not merely a, a burden on the back, but now the ability to walk with God. And they would not. And their perception of their own freedom is the most pitiable kind of freedom. To depart from the security and the surety of God's blessing to fend for yourselves. But time and time again, we run into the Flying J gas station with our $5 bill and hope to satisfy our thirst and cool our exhaustion on our own. And God lets us. He's waiting to supply an overabundance of blessing, but He gives us over to our stubborn hearts to follow our own counsel. And this language is also used in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 when God is speaking of all of humanity who have rejected the revelation of His goodness. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That might look like freedom. but it stinks like death. Oh, that we would not fend for ourselves. Oh, that we would not let go of God so that He would not give us over. Oh, that we would hold fast to Him and experience life with Him as it was meant to be lived. And the lament continues in verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Listen to God's heart longing for His people to return to Him. I use the word lament here because lament is characteristically a sorrowful acknowledgement that reality is not as it should be. That there is something better. There's something that should be better, that could be better, and it is not so. But the people don't recognize that in Psalm 81. They imagine that they are free. They have been given over when, in fact, they are now enslaved once again, given over to their own stubborn hearts. God has let His children walk away but not gladly. 
he laments his children's distrust of his generosity. He laments his children's disobedience. It breaks his heart. And you can picture the father of the prodigal son longing for the son to return, running to meet him. And there's a lesson for us here that being freed from slavery in Egypt does not mean that now you're free to do whatever you want. It means you are led into the wilderness where there's no other choice but to depend on God. You die in the wilderness if God does not sustain you. And believe this oracle you will want to depend on God for everything because He longs to satisfy you. Look at those concluding words in verse 10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The manna in the wilderness The people hoarded because they did not believe that God would provide. The rock at Meribah, the rock they struck because they did not believe that God would provide with just a word. Turn after turn, step after step, they doubt his generosity. And when they complained, God met their need. The water still came out of the rock. And it's even hard to imagine what would have happened if they had listened and obeyed him. How much grander gifts God had in store for them that were missed. And you are here, walking in the wilderness. Will you trust God's generosity? Will you believe that He is not stingy towards you? That your hunger for hope, He will satisfy. That your thirst for joy, He will quench. He continues because it's not just the physical needs of food and drink that God knows and cares about, but also the future security of God's people depends on God. Look at verse 14. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him and their fate would last forever. They wandered in the wilderness in the shadows of the kingdoms of Canaan, God's enemies. And today we walk in the shadows of exile. This lesson Israel should have learned as they first gazed on the first city of Canaan, the promised land. And they saw a giant people, enormous, strong, angry. They weren't going to let them in. And the people weren't going to trust God. And so he sends them back into the wilderness you haven't learned your lesson yet. Am I enough? 
Will you believe me? Let's try it again 40 years from now with a totally new people. Because I am enough. But this, this final verse here in Psalm 81 is perhaps the sweetest. He would feed you with the finest of the wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Notice the contrast between the waters of Meribah and the water that God desires to give His people. At Meribah, they were thirsty. They complained, and God gave them water from the rock, a miracle of providence. They walked into the flying jay with their $5 bill, and bought all that it could buy. But God's heart for His people was not merely to provide for their bare necessity, but one that longed to abundantly provide, not with just water-tasting water, but honey from the rock. The essence of all that's gone wrong in the heart of God's people, that's all that's gone wrong in our hearts, is summed up in Jeremiah 2.13, which says, and God is speaking here, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. God's people did not only doubt the goodness and generosity of God, but they ran to meet their own needs, to fend for themselves, to abandon Him. In Egypt, the question was, is God enough? And in their groaning, In desperation, they cried, yes. In the wilderness, the question did not change. Is God enough? And in their complaining, they cry, no. Are you still in Egypt, still in slavery? still carrying a shoulder on your back and a basket in your hands of all of the baggage, cry out to God and He will deliver you. The answer is, yes, He is enough. And if you're here wandering in the wilderness as one that's already been freed from slavery but now in a desperate place, longing for the place you are going, Would you remember that God was enough in Egypt and He'll be enough today? He has proven Himself exceedingly, abundantly generous in His deliverance of you. And He offers you water that will quench every thirst. When Jesus, who Paul in 1 Corinthians identifies as the water-giving rock that was struck in the wilderness, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman in John 4, He says, Give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So would you throw yourself at the fountain again and again and drink deeply from the gospel well, and you will be satisfied. Would you pray with me? Spirit, may these words be both a warning and an invitation to us to run to you, to look to you, to wait on you. May we never doubt your generosity. And may this freedom, as we experience it, lead us to listen and obey. And may we, when we depend on you alone, find ourselves satisfied as we drink deeply from this fountain that is the goodness of Christ. We need your help. Amen.